0: and good afternoon you're listening to ken hudnell this is the ken hudnell show coming to you from our studios right here in exciting el paso texas gateway to the old west and the most haunted city in the country well today is december the 7th pearl harbor day 341st day of the year 24 days remaining to the years over with the uh National Holidays and Observances, and National Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day, International Civil Aviation Day, National Cotton Candy Day, Hanukkah, Blue Christmas, um, Gift of Sight Month, Operation Santa Paws, Worldwide Food Service Safety Month. National Right of Business Plan Month, National Time Month, National Pair Month, Universal Human Rights Month, and there's not a whole lot of that going on these days. You know, the the big thing on the state, of course, is the Pearl Harbor attack, uh, December 7th, 1941. And no moment in history of the United States casts a longer shadow than Pearl Harbor. It's become a national imperative to remember Pearl Harbor. Reminds us that duty has become a ritual of media and political discourse, repeated so often in so many ways, it's become a really a part of uh, our culture. The, uh, you know, the, the relationship between the U.S. and Japan began with the forced opening of Japan in the 19th century. Japan did not want to open itself up to our ships and trading, but courtesy of Commodore Matthew Perry and his black ships, as his squadron was called, uh, Japanese didn't have a whole lot of choice, and their sudden exposure to the outside world after centuries of isolation generated a helter-skelter period of transformation, revolutionary era in which Japan overthrew uh, Many of its oldest traditions have built itself into a technologically advanced industrial state with modern systems of administration and government, and most importantly, a powerful military. Japan's rise to being a great power was rapid with victorious wars over China in 1894 and 95 and Russia in 1904 and 1905, as well as successful, if subsidiary, role on the side of the Allies in World War I. Again and again, Japan struck quickly to win wars over larger and theoretically more powerful opponents. And this very success that Japan enjoyed placed the island empire squarely in the sights of the other great powers, generated an increasingly tense strategic rivalry with the US for domination of the Pacific. And this is what's been called the long fuse of the Great Pacific War, 1941-45 long-term background of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. You know, sitting in the Japanese crosshairs on that particular Sunday morning was not open only to the U.S. Pacific Fleet, but the Hawaiian Islands itself. It was an independent kingdom with a long and proud history of its own, discovered by the West and initially called the Sandwich Islands, only became a U.S. possession in the 1890s. A rebellion by the Anglo population of the islands rose up in revolt against the rule of the Queen of Hawaii. Little Yuo Kamalani, declaring the Republic of Hawaii, the rebels then requested annexation by the U.S. and this took place in 1898. And since then, a new society has grown up of Native Islanders, Americans, and Japanese immigrants. Had a robust economy based on the island's numerous sugarcane plantations. And Hawaii also saw an increasingly strong U.S. naval presence. Crucial moment came in 1940. As tensions built between the U.S. and Japan, Uh, Franklin Roosevelt ordered the U.S. Pacific Fleet to transfer from its home port to San Diego to Pearl Harbor, just opening us up for a surprise attack. Well, and that's... See what else took place on December 7th. 43 B.C., Marcus Tilius Cicero is assassinated in Formio on orders of Marcus Antonius. 574 A.D., Byzantine Emperor Justin II, suffering recurring seizures of insanity, adopts his general, Tiberius, and proclaims him as Caesar. 927, the Sajid Emer of Yusuf ibn Abbasaj is defeated and captured by the Cremations near Kufa. Seventeen o three, the Great Storm of seventeen o three, greatest windstorm ever recorded in the southern part of Great Britain, makes landfall. Gusts go up to one hundred twenty miles an hour, and over nine thousand people die. Seventeen twenty four, the tumult of tumult of Thorn. This unrest is followed by the execution of nine Protestant citizens and the mayor of Thorn by Polish authorities. 1732, Royal Opera House opens at Covent Gardens in London. 1776, Gilbert Dumontier, Marquis de Lafayette, arranges to enter the American military as a major general. If you know the right people... 1787, Delaware becomes the first state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. 1837, the Battle of Montgomery's Tavern, the only battle of the Upper Canadian Rebellion, takes place in Toronto. The rebels are quickly defeated. 1842, first concert in the New York Philharmonic, founded by Urelli Corelli Hill. 1904. Comparative fuel trials that began between warships, HMS Spiteful and HMS Petrel, Spiteful was the first warship powered solely by fuel oil, and trials led to, trials led to the obsolescence of coal in ships of the Royal Navy. Nineteen seven 1907, now our illustrious leaders want to do away with fuel oil, do everything with solar. It's got to have a hell of an extension cord. 1917, World War I, US declares war on Austria Hungary. 1922, the Parliament of Northern Ireland votes to remain a part of the United Kingdom, not unify with Southern Ireland. uh, All right, 1930, on this date, W1XAV in Boston. Telecast video from the CBS Radio Orchestra program, The Foxtrappers. Telecast also includes the first television advertisement in the U.S. for I.J. Fox Furriers, which also sponsored the radio show. 1932, German-born Swiss physicist Albert Einstein is granted an American visa. 1936, Australian cricketer Jack Fingleton becomes the first player to score centuries four consecutive test innings. 1941, World War II. Was the attack on Pearl Harbor? A period. Of old Japanese Navy carries out a surprise attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet and its defending Army and Marine Air Forces at Pearl Harbor. Um, Japan carried out near simultaneous attacks on Eastern Hemisphere targets as well. Uh, they went all out. They had routinely and traditionally won many battles and wars by striking first. 1942, World War II, British commandos conduct Operation Frankton, a raid on shipping in Bordeaux Harbor. 1944, an earthquake along the coast of Wakayama Prefecture in Japan creates a tsunami that kills 1,223 people. 1946, a fire at the Weinkauf Hotel in Atlanta, Georgia kills 119 people, the deadliest hotel fire in U.S. history. 1949, Chinese Civil War, the government of Republic of China moves from Najim to Taipei, Taiwan. 1962, Prince Rainier III of Monaco revises the Principality's constitution, devolving some of his power to advisory and legislative councils. 1963, Instant Replay makes its debut during the Army Navy football game in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 1965, Pope Paul VI and Patriarch athenagoras the first simultaneously revoked mutual excommunications that have been in place since 1054. 1971 the battle of had is fought between the Pakistani military and the mukti bahini uh, the mukti bahini for those that are not familiar also known as the bangladesh forces was the guerrilla resistance movement consisting of the Bangladeshi military, paramilitary, and civilians during the Bangladesh Liberation Wars that transformed East Pakistan in Bangladesh in 1971. Initially, they were called the, the Mukti Fa'uj. Also in 1971, Pakistan President Yahya Khan announces the formation of a coalition government with uh, Narul Amin as Prime Minister in Zulfikar Ali Bhutto as Deputy Prime Minister. 1972, Apollo 17, the last Apollo moon mission is launched. Crew takes the photograph known as the Blue Marble as they leave the Earth. 1982, in Texas, Charles Brooks Jr. becomes the first person to be executed by lethal injection in the U.S. 1982, the Senior Road Tower collapses in less than 17 seconds. Five workers on the tower are killed, and three workers on a building nearby are injured. If a building falls you on you. you're on also having almost as bad a day as an airplane falling on you. 1983, an Iberia Airlines' Boeing 727 collides with an Aviaco DC-9 in dense fog while the two airliners are taxiing down the runway at Madrid-Bajaras Airport. Killed 93 people. 1987, Pacific Southwest Airlines Flight 1771, a British Aerospace 146 200A, crashes near Paso Robles, California. Killed all 43 people on board after a disgruntled passenger shoots his ex boss traveling on the flight and then shoots both pilots and steers the plane into the ground. 1988, 6.8, Armenian earthquake shakes the northern part of the country with a maximum. A McKaylee, uh, McKaylee intensity of uh, 10, which is considered devastating, killing 25,000 to 50,000, injuring 31,000 to 130,000. 1993, Long Island Railroad shooting. Passenger Colin Ferguson murders six people and injures 19 others on the Long Island Railroad in Nassau County, New York. 1995, the Galileo spacecraft arrives at Jupiter a little more than six years after its launch by Space Shuttle Atlantis during mission STS 34. 1995, the Khabarovsk United Air Group Flight 3949 crashes into the the Zuasa Mountains, killing 98 people. 1995, an Air St. Martin, now Air Caribs Beechcraft 1900, crashes near the Haitian commune of Bella Anse, killing 20. 2003, the Conservative Party of Canada is officially registered following the merger of the Canadian Alliance and the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. 2005, Rigoberto Apazar, passenger on American Airlines Flight 924, allegedly claimed to have a bomb and is shot and killed by a team of U.S. Federal Air marshals at Miami International Airport. 2015, a JAXA probe, Atsuka. Successfully enters orbit around Venus five years after the first attempt. JAXA, for those that are not familiar, is the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency. 2016, Pakistan International Airlines Flight 661, a domestic passenger flight from Chitral to Islamabad, operated by ATR-42500, uh, crashes near Havelian, uh, killing all 47 people on board. You know, it's always fascinating to um, to look back at history, especially on a day as auspicious as December 7th. Um, for some reason, major events seem to gravitate to certain dates. Now, there have been a lot of um, mysteries, <coughs> that have been um, impossible to to solve, and there's one that has to do with uh, Pearl Harbor that I've heard very little discussed. It involves a um, a tramp steamer. Actually, a sunken ship, a vanished crew, and what's called the final mystery of Pearl Harbor. Well, the story of this mystery ship began Monday, December first, nineteen forty-one. Captain Berthold Carlson leaned over the bridge wing of the steamship Cynthia Olson in order deck deckhands to let go of the mooring lines. It left a uh, pier in Seattle, Washington. Carlson was a 64-year-old master mariner, ordered slow ahead. Minutes later, her single propeller churned the waters of Elliott Bay, and the 22-year-old ship set out on a 135-mile passage up Puget Sound. Now, this was a very familiar route to both Carlson and his vessel. You know, the ship had sailed Atlantic and Caribbean for the first seven months of '41. the oaths and the waters on the, West Coast as a lumber carrier. Its own port was San Francisco. Made calls at Olympia, Tacoma, and the other Pacific and Northwest ports. Carlson generally was in command. And once her decks were covered with stacks of freshly sawn timber and her holes filled with massive rolls of newsprints, she'd sail for Oakland, Los Angeles, or San Diego. It was a fairly mundane routine and had proven very unprofitable for her owner. Oliver J. Olson Steamship Company out of San Francisco. Well, that routine changed abruptly in early August when the Olson Company signed a contract with the U.S. Army. That service had launched a military construction effort uh, in Hawaii in response to the increasing threat of war in the Pacific, and Cynthia Olson and a lot of ships like her were needed to haul the timber that had become the barracks and warehouses and aircraft hangars of the War Department hoped would be a newly invigorated Hawaii Defense Force. Um, Hawaii, prior to World War II, just like the Panama Canal Zone when I got sent there, was generally referred to as a as a pre-retirement posting. Not a lot went on. It was laid back in the sun. Uh, World War II, um, and the build-up to it, uh, invigorated Hawaii and Richard, William R. Richardson being put in command of the, um, 193rd Infantry Brigade in uh, Panama Canal Zone changed Panama. So the Cynthia Olson embarked on her first timber hauling passage to Pearl Harbor on August 22nd, completing each leg of the trip in nine and a half days. On this trip, it was under the command of Captain P.C. Johnson. Second trip in late September and early October worked out equally well, and on November 18th, the Army charted the vessel outright. Now, on the first day of December, 41, she was setting out again with Carlson as a last-minute substitute for Johnson, who was ill. Sharing the Bridge was first mate uh, William Bucktail, himself a last-minute replacement. What neither mariner could know was their ship and the 35 men on board were embarking on their final voyage. Even as the Cynthia Olsen put out to sea, events were unfolding. that would pit the ship and her crew against the deadly foe. Mark the beginning of a new front in global conflict, and create one of the most enduring nautical mysteries of World War II. Now, the the vessel that Carlson and his crew took to sea that day in December 41, it started life a continent away, and by the time she set out on her last voyage, she'd already spent over 20 years plying both the Atlantic and the Pacific. And frankly, she was starting to show her age product of Wisconsin's uh, Anatolic of a shipbuilding company, the vessel was laid down in September 1918 as a Coquina, one of 331 ocean-going freighters built for the U.S. shipping board by firms throughout the Great Lakes. Uh, of essentially identical design, these steel, her, her steel-hulled ships became to be known as lake-class uh, vessels. Both, because... Where they were built, and because many initially bore names beginning with the word lake. They were similar in layout and to the medium-sized ocean going Frederickstad freighter design developed uh, in World War I by neutral Scandinavian shipbuilders. An economical type that was well suited to prefabrication and mass production. And both attributes are particularly important given that the first 91 Lakers have been contracted for by the British companies, planning to put them into service in support of the UK's war effort. When America entered the conflict in April of 1917. The U.S. government abrogated the British contracts, and the next month the uh U.S. Shipping Board requisitioned the vessels for wartime cargo duty on behalf of the U.S. and her allies. Well, the United States uh, Shipping Board and after September 1917, a subordinate agency called the Emergency Fleet Corporation ordered contracts for the construction of 346 Laker-class ships. When this number is added to the requisition British-ordered vessels, it renders the Laker program the largest standard-type shipbuilding effort undertaken by the U.S. during World War I. Ships had six variants which differed slightly in tonnage and overall length. Each variant was given a type number with 33 examples, ultimately manufactured by a Manitowoc shipbuilding being designated design 1044. Well, now the company whose interest the Coquina piqued was the creation of one Oliver Olson. Coquina was spotted and decided uh, to take it on. Oliver Olson was a sign of a California family's is intertwined with both California and the West Coast maritime development. Now, his father was born Lars Olson Vazvet in Stavanger, Norway in, 19, in 1828. Immigrated to the U.S. in 1849, made his way to the West Coast. Lewis Olson, as he Styled himself, settled in San Francisco in 1868, married Delilah Lacy, an Irish-born young lady, some 18 years his junior. San Francisco in the years just after the Civil War was a place of infinite possibility for a man with ambition and plans, and Lewis and Ocean had both. Realizing that rapidly urbanizing Central California desperately needed a good, cheap lumber to build homes and businesses for its population. He became a junior partner in a small coastal shipping firm specialized in hauling logs and sawn timber to San Francisco from mills in the Pacific Northwest. A profitable line of work, and Lewis prospered, which was probably a good thing. For by 1884, Delia, uh, oh, excuse me, Delia had given him two daughters and seven sons. However, John Olson, the second son, child and first son, was born in San Francisco in 1872. But in the early 1890s, Lewis Olson branched out on his own, buying a two-masted wooden schooner Jim and putting her to work hauling deck and lumber from mills in Oregon to the Bay Area. And he made a good living, but it was a hard life, and one in which success depended far too much on the vagaries of tide and timber. Wanting better, more stable lives for his son, he did all he could to dissuade him from following him to sea. And it worked, at least initially, with Oliver. When when he turned 18, his oldest son took a job as a junior accountant with the San Francisco-based Wimpy uh, Brothers paper box company. Long days spent pouring over weighty ledgers didn't seem to bother him, though he was an avid listener to his brother William's sea stories. Well, four years younger than Oliver, William had uh, ignored his father's pleas not to go to sea and had shipped as a cabin boy at age 14 on the WW case. Well... It was on the afternoon of Monday, April twenty-second, 1940, that Whit and George Olson searched for two vessels upon which they could build their hope for a west coast. The Honolulu service ended on the rickety southern California pier. They would flown from San Francisco to Los Angeles that morning, accompanied by their director of engineering, and they made a short j- drive to San Pedro to see the, the Coquina and the Corrales. Two Lakers were tied side by side at the same pier that had been their home for the last four years. And, of course, they looked somewhat the worse for wear. Streets of rust and chip paint marred their hulls, and several months' worth of seagull droppings uh, covered the upper works. But it didn't matter to the Olsons how the ships looked. They wanted to know whether they were mechanically sound. And accompanied by a Matson representative, the brothers and their engineering expert clambered over every inch of both vessels. Satisfied they were in better condition than they appeared to be, they poured over the ship's engineering and deck logs and finished up with a thorough examination of the maintenance records. Uh, The Coquina and the Corrales apparently passed inspection because the next day the Oliver J. Olson Company offered to buy both vessels from Matson Navigation. After a series of back-and-forth negotiations, they agreed to a final price of $75,000 per vessel, which in 1940... Well, not a bad price. With the Olsons financing the purchase through the San Francisco-based Wells Fargo Bank and Union Trust Company, the bill of sales finalized April 25th. The next day, both ships are underway for the Golden Gate. April 30th, the Olson Company requested the Commerce Department's Bureau of Marine Inspection and Navigation officially change the home port of both vessels from Los Angeles to San Francisco. And they changed the names of both ships from the Canaan and the Caradas to the Cynthia Olsen and the Barbara Olsen. All important name changes were approved on May 4th. Within days, both ships would be repainted to their new, uh, new owner's colors. Well, they worked hard to get things ready. It's a good thing they were quick because the Army's first contract uh, uh, happened in the fall of 1940. The Army Transport Service Office of San Francisco's Fort Mason uh, issued a solicitation for bids to carry lumber from various ports in the Pacific Northwest to San Francisco and San Pedro. Wood was destined for military construction projects throughout the continental U.S. to be moved onward from the coastal ports by rail. And that was the job that the Olson Company was looking for, and the firm was awarded the Contract in September 1940, while several company vessels have put to work on the, uh, fulfilling the contract, the Cynthia Olson and the Barbara Olson formed the backbone of the effort. For the next 11 months, the Lakers uh, routinely plied the coastal shipping lanes, each load approximating uh, 2 million board feet of sound lumber. In such ports as Astoria, Oregon; Aberdeen, Olympia, Tacoma, and Seattle, Washington. Eureka, California. Ships carried the lumber south to San Francisco or San Pedro where the cargo was transshipped to rail cars for onward movement. And under the terms of the ATS contract, the Olsen companies authorized to carry non-government cargoes if and when space was available and if the carriage of such cargo didn't interfere with the timely delivery of the Army-owned timber. As a result, the Cynthia Olsen and her sister ship often fill their holes with commercial goods on a northbound passage, earning their owners a respectably uh, tidy extra income on top of the revenue generated by the government contracts. And as was common practice at the time, the Olson Company didn't employ full-time crew members for its ships. Merchant seamen were booked for each round-trip voyage through the Union Halls in San Francisco and San Pedro. a particular individual might work steadily on one of the Olson vessels. He could also be booked aboard the ships of other firms, such as the E.K. Wood Lumber Company process was a little different for masters and mates and chief engineers as the ship's senior officers had to have both the necessary experience and appropriate licenses for the routes in the vessels and as a result while masters mates and engineers weren't technically full-time Olsen Company employees the same individuals tended to appear continually on the crew rosters of both the Cynthia Olsen and the Barbara Olsen and the names of each ship's master rarely differed uh Captain P.C. Johnson for the Cynthia Olsen and Berthel Carlson for the Barbara Olson. Well, the two ships proved to be dependable and capable in their performance. For the First Army contract stood them in good stead when, in July 1940, bids were solicited for a series of U.S. to Hawaii lumber voyages. Army planned to ship increasingly large amounts of and timber to Oahu and intended to award segments of the contract to a number of shipping lines. Olson Company was among the first firms to submit a comprehensive bid. Was in fact so eager to tender for the job it overlooked a key point. Sent the Olson and her sister ships were only licensed for coastwise operation. Should sure, their owners win a portion of the Trans-Pacific shipping contract, both vessels would have to be quickly re-inspected and certified for open ocean operations before they could legally undertake the passage to Hawaii. And this issue became a real concern during the first week of August when the Olson Company was awarded a portion of the contract. Oh, Cynthia Olson and Barbara Olsen were on their way to south from Puget Sound when the company learned of the contract award, and went and George Olson immediately started planning how to get the ship's current cargoes offloaded as quickly as possible so the vessels could get to the Pacific Northwest to load the Hawaii-bound timber and make it to Honolulu within a specific time frame. Well, Cynthia Olsen arrived in San Pedro on August 4th, and over the next four days, Steve Doers relieved her of just over 2 million board feet of timber. On the afternoon of August 8th, she departed for San Francisco, arrived the next morning, stayed only long enough to take on board food, fuel, and fresh water and some additional crewmen, and sailed out on the morning of August 10th. Well, the ship's departure for the Pacific Northwest and ultimately for Hawaii was something of a gamble on her owner's part. Cynthia Olson was still certified as a coastwise vessel and would have to undergo and pass a thorough inspection before she would be reclassified as suitable for ocean use. And while the ships could have gone and undergone the inspection in San Francisco, the ocean's decided it's more expedient to have the ships inspected and recertified in Seattle, even as she was being loaded for the passage to Oahu. Well, in an effort to better the odds on their gamble with the Cynthia Olson, the brother sought the assistance of William Fisher, a Bureau of Inspection and Navigation supervising inspector in San Francisco. As Ellison's uh, urging, Fisher sent an airmail letter on August 12th asking his agency's local inspectors in Seattle to undertake the inspection. He noted the matter of the hospitals involved, meaning the terms of the Army contract required the Laker to have a dedicated six bay. sick bay, something not normally present on coastwise uh, cargo vessels. Well, Fisher's request for extradited action had the desired effect. August 14th, local inspectors Daniel Hutchings and William Campbell boarded to Santa Olsen in Bellingham and accompanied by Captain Johnson undertook an expedited but apparently comprehensive inspection and addressing the issue with stick bay the inspectors noted the vessel has one spare room that the master intends to use as a hospital which is in our opinion suitable for three birds well oddly enough Fisher left on a business trip almost as soon as he sent Hutchins and Campbell, the two inspectors, the initial request for an expedited inspection. When the local inspector's airmail letter late San Francisco on the morning of August 15th, Fisher's clerk fired off a telegram informing him the supervisor inspector was at that moment in Portland to be in Seattle the next day. As Cynthia Olson was scheduled to sail before officials' arrival, the clerk suggested that Hutchins and Campbell try to reach him in Portland. Well... So without the senior supervisor inspector checking things out, the ship was certified for ocean use. Well, the the captain of the Cynthia Olsen was under the gun to get moving as fast as possible due to the time schedules in the ATS contract. Almost as soon as the last piece of lumber was cleared from Cynthia Olson's holes and decks, Longshoremen began loading it with mixed cargo bound for Fort Mason. Much of the lumber Cynthia Olson carried from the Pacific Northwest on that first voyage to Hawaii. Eventually was used to build a stout two-story barrack building, with, which newly arrived soldiers are more than happy to l- relocate. The uh, shipment included... Uh, such things as the crated household goods of army officers being transferred from the philippines and hawaii back to the mainland containers of empty brass artillery shell cases being returned to stateside arsenals for refilling and engines and other parts removed from army aircraft at wheeler field and bound for repair shops and although the army cargo manifested for the return voids filled the lakers holes or decks remained clear so johnson shifted his c- vessel to a commercial pier to take on a deck load of commercial cargo September second, the Yolson sailed for California, just after noon. End of the return voyage was without incident. Ship passed through the Golden Gate the evening of September eleventh. Didn't stay in San Francisco long. Three days later, she departed for Eureka, and Astoria. Apparently loaded lumber at each port and reached the entrance to the Strait of Juan de Fuca on September nineteenth. Johnson then took the ship southeast to Puget Sound, Seattle, off his port side and Bainbridge and by Shon Islands to starboard, passing Tacoma, the Cynthia Olson made her way around Point Defiance, which through this quality reach and eventually the Bud Inlet to a loading pier at Olympia. Well, the loading process stretched through the night. Cynthia Olson left Olympia on the morning of September 20th, retraced her route of the day before, and was alongside a Seattle fueling pier by the late afternoon. Over the next three days, she took on fuel and food. Some additional Army cargo trucked up from Fort Lewis south of Tacoma and ready to depart by the morning of September 23rd. After some last-minute consultation with a group of Quartermaster Corps officers, uh, Johnson ordered the lines cast off, and Asintia Olson set out for a second Army contracted voyage to Hawaii. And the passage was apparently as uneventful as the first. The ship arrived off Honolulu the evening of October 2nd, nine and a half days out of Seattle. Congestion at the Kapalama piers kept Cynthia Olson anchored out into the morning of October 3rd when she was able to pick up her tugs and move into the basin. Unloading began within hours of her arrival at her sign pier and was completed by the afternoon of October 7th. That was a Tuesday. As before, the ship was loaded with miscellaneous Army cargo bound for the west coast and sailed on the morning of October 10th. Well, her second voyage to Hawaii followed the pattern set by the first. Passage and her return to the West Coast differed in that she would steam straight to Seattle rather than the first calling at San Francisco, as she had in early September. Now, surviving records don't provide a reason for the changed routing, but because she was operating an Army contract, uh, in all likelihood, uh, the change resulted from an Army request. Circumstantial evidence points to high priority cargo given that the Cynthia Olson arrived in Seattle on Sunday, October 19th, but didn't depart for Hawaii until October 27th. She did carry some special cargo to Seattle, but records don't survive that identify the nature of the cargo. Cynthia Olson's third passage to Hawaii ended November 5th, when the vessel once again was alongside uh, in the Kapalama Basin. As on the two previous trips, the offload process began almost as soon as her lines were attached to the pier's bollards. While the Lakers' trips to Honolulu were beginning to settle into a comfortable routine, a meeting that occurred in Washington, D.C. three months before was about to alter that routine in a very significant way. August 29, 1941, representatives of the Army, Navy, and the Office of Production Management and Price Administration met at the headquarters of the U.S. Maritime Commission. Now, this meeting was intended to address what was becoming an increasingly important issue allocation of shipping dedicated to the intercoastal transportation of priority military cargoes. Because of an increasing number of U.S. registered coastwise and short-sleeve cargo vessels uh, being contracted to carry freight ultimately destined for Great Britain or France, Army and Navy officials feared there wouldn't be enough vessels available to carry their priority cargoes, mainly lumber for the Army and iron and steel products for the Navy should the U.S. be drawn into the war. So the Army represented at the August meeting by the Chief of the Quartermaster Corps' Traffic Control Branch made the point that lumber was an increasingly important strategic resource for a variety of reasons. First, sawn timber was a basic building material for the vast number of structures going up at military bases across the country and overseas, and hundreds of millions of board feet would ultimately be required for the ongoing military expansion. And wood was an integral part of aircraft and shipbuilding industries. While the Army didn't need the posi- uh, permission of the Internet Coastal Shipping Priorities Advisory Committee to implement the uh, bare board charter of suitable lumber carriers, the committee in fact agreed that the plan was the most suitable way to prevent a shortage of these vessels. So when the Army began soliciting for charters, it therefore had the committee's backing, a uh, not inconsequential fact from the point of view of many ship owners. Concerned if the U.S. went to war, the Maritime Commission would well be commandeering civilian vessels for military service. Some shipping companies saw the Intercoastal Committee's backing the Army's bareboard charter plan as a tacit agreement that vessels voluntarily chartered to the Army at pre-war prices wouldn't later be involved in requisition at lower wartime prices, which was an important stipulation for the, as far as the companies were concerned. As a leading West Coast l- lumber shipping firm and one already working under contract to the Army, the Olson Company is among the first steamship lines to be approached about the possibility of these bare bo- uh, boat charters and Early in November, even the Cynthia Olson was taking on cargo in Honolulu for a return voyage to the West Coast. Uh, the two owners of the Olson Company made it Fort Mason with the superintendent of the Army's Transport Service in San Francisco office. Uh, the Army was interested in chartering both the Cynthia Olson and Barbara Olson, but uh, Colonel Mellon, who was the commander, or the superintendent, that is, of the Army Transport Service in San Francisco office, wanted to do so into separate agreements. And the terms Mellon proposed for Cynthia Olson's bear boat charter was straightforward. Um, they paid the Olson company $10,260 a month, provided $200,000 in insurance coverage for the vessel. The uh, value of the boat was only $71,600. And estimated the cost of an average of cargo of about 2 million board feet would be $73,000. The Army stated at its own expense would man operate uh, victor, fuel, and supply the vessel and pay off uh, port charges and pilotage and other costs and expenses incident to the use and operation of the vessel. After two weeks of negotiation and scrutiny of the charter terms by attorneys on both sides, the, an agreement was reached on the contract. It was signed November 18th by Whit Olson and Colonel Mellon and witnessed by George Olson. As of that date, the ship in question officially became United States Army Transport Cynthia Olson. No ceremony marked the occasion because she was still inbound from Hawaii. When uh, Johnson was informed of the Charter Transport Radio and asked if he would agree to stay on as Cynthia Olson's master, he asked only two questions. Would he be able to pick his own officers, and would there be an increase in the salary? And both questions were answered in the affirmative. He said, sure. What he didn't add was he'd been feeling ill for several days and wasn't sure he'd be able to make the first charter voyage. Well, when the Cynthia Olsen arrived, it went to the Alameda Naval Air Station. Um, which meant that there was a question about the material on board. Was it Navy or was it Army? It's possible that Cynthia Olson could have been carrying Navy aircraft parts destined for repair at Alameda. And it's certainly not unknown for Army-owned, chartered, or contracted vessels to carry cargo belonging to the Navy, Marine Corps, or even the Coast Guard, especially if the ship was homeward bound little little no Army freight. Or maybe they... They stopped at Alameda to disembark Navy personnel who'd caught a convenient lift back from Hawaii. Unfortunately, we'll never know for certain because the records are not existent. Well when they got to the ATS headquarters, Captain Johnson told him he was too ill to continue to serve his master. And his first mate had chosen not to sign on for the voyage, so the two top members of the Lakers crew would have to be replaced and quickly. Well, John's not a solution for the problem. He had a radio contact with company headquarters even before he got in port and told the Olsen brothers of both his illness and his first mate's decision not to sign on for the first charter trip. So Captain Carlson took over. Well, what Olson couldn't have chosen a better qualified man to take Johnson's place on the Cynthia Olson. At 64, Carl Bertha Bert Carlson was the pinnacle of a long, very unsuccessful career. Born in Norway, March 19, 1877, he told friends throughout his life he'd come from a long line of seafarers. By the time he'd reached 17, he'd apparently had enough of life in Bergen, Norway. Spring of 1894, he boarded an immigrant ship bound for the New World. Traveling on a vessel packed with other Scandinavians who, like himself, sought new lives in America, he landed in New York. The next 18 years of his life are something of a mystery, given that surviving records give no indication where, where he lived or whether he had a family. And his name does occasionally appear on crew manifest of ships sailing both in the California coastwise passenger and cargo trades and international passages from Pacific and Atlantic ports. Well, The man who agreed to join Carlson on the Santiago's First Army Charter Voyage was born in Denmark, 1902. His name at birth was Wilhelm Buchtel petersen had a sister and son of a well-known musician and academician academician, Rasmus Peterson. Other than that, his early life is a mystery. Among the details, it remained obscure when and where he came to the U.S. But like many Scandinavians, he ultimately gravitated to the west coast. He wasn't a big man. Um, naturalized in San Francisco, December twenty first, nineteen twenty nine, and uh, changed his name to William Peterson Bucktail. Now, among the senior officers was Carl Jonstad, fifty nine. He was second officer. Engineer was uh Conrad Harold Harry uh, Lofving, 63, native Scandinavian. The deck um senior deck officer was Roland Dodd. He was forty years old, quartermaster, born in Atlanta, Georgia. Joaquin Dogison, thirty nine, was bosun, born in the Philippines. Handling the mess department was Anthony Bushka, chief steward, born in Chicago. Well, it had a cosmopolitan crew. The final two members stood out from the arrest during the late evening muster because they wore Army uniforms. 24-year-old medic Private Ernest Justin Davenport would have dominion over the ship's four-bed sick bay. 25-year-old radio operator Private Samuel Ziskin would be responsible for keeping the vessel in touch with the world at large. You know. Early on the morning of November 22nd, Army tug, uh, harbor tugs nudged Cynthia Olson away from her Fort Mason pier. And with her decks yet uncovered by timber and her holes empty, she rode high in the water, though that condition would change dramatically when she'd taken on her cargo up north. Um, Carlson's sailing orders required low timber at Olympia, Tacoma, and Seattle and sailed to Honolulu by December 1st. And he saw no reason why that schedule would not be maintained. His ship was old, but it was certainly dependable, and Richard Mariners who manned her were experienced and capable. While well, his ATS briefing mentioned the possibility of German raiders or submarines might be operating along Cynthia Olson's route, uh, Carlson thought it was unlikely any Nazi warships would be bothered to expend uh, variable ordnance on a humble uh, lumber schooner. He was only half right, and even as Cynthia Olson was departing San Francisco over the Pacific Northwest, the Imperial Japanese Navy submarine I-26 was plowing its way eastward through heavy seas toward the Gulf of Alaska. It was a B-1 type fleet boat. She and other 19 vessels of her class have been designed for worldwide operations and the I-26 was one of the largest and most advanced submarines in the world when commissioned in November 6, 1941. With her six torpedo tubes and 5.5 inch 30 year type referred deck gun, she was a Formidable seagoing predator. Also intended to be a globe encircling reconnaissance uh, platform. A range was more than 14,000 nautical miles, meant she could easily operate off the west coast of both North and South America and throughout uh, Australasia. A watertight hangar just forward of her conning tower allowed her to embark a small Yokosuka E 144YI float plane capable of undertaking over the horizon reconnaissance flights. Its ability to range far and wide and report on enemy movements had led Admiral Yosuruko Yamamoto, commander-in-chief of the combined fleet, to task the I-26 and other vessels of her class with key roles in Operation Hawaii. That was the name given to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And all 27 submarines were to support the assault, with 11 of them carrying reconnaissance aircraft and five others transporting midget subs that were to infiltrate Pearl Harbor in advance of the planned aeronautical attack. The I-26 role in the airstrike against the U.S. Pacific Fleet was initially a supporting one. Signed to Submarine Squadron 1 as an Imperial Japanese Navy 6th Fleet, she'd reconnoiter uh, American naval forces and installations in and around the Aleutian Islands. After reporting her findings to the International Japanese Navy Headquarters, the I-26 was to sail for a point midway between San Francisco and Honolulu to Locate report only a possible attack Any American warship steaming for Hawaii in the wake of Japanese assault. Given the distance she was expected to cover, her hangar was to carry food and extra fuel rather than a seaplane. It was a challenging and dangerous voyage for the submariner and a 94-man crew, but she was captained by one of Japan's ablest submariners, Commander Minoru Yokota. And like many who took to the sea, Minoru Yokota was born from far from saltwater, small house in the, the Chauguko Mountains of Wakayama Prefecture in western Honshu. Well, when, uh, well, let's see. The 2,000-mile passage to the Aleutians was not a pleasant one for Yokota and his crew. The collision of the warm northeastward-flowing Kurushio current with the cold southeastward-flowing Oyashio current occurs to the east coast of central Japan, turning what is a volatile body of water into the best of times into a place of seemingly endless winter gales and riotous seas. And traveling on the surface to make best speed within hours of leaving port, the I-26 was pounded by mountainous waves that threatened to wash away the two lookouts. Huddled atop either side of the periscope casing at the uh, aft of her conning tower. And things didn't improve as the vessel moved further north. Of course, took her directly into the Aleutian current, and conditions that had been ex- merely extremely difficult became potentially lethal. Well, must to relief for everybody aboard the I-26. Yokota's orders directed him to run submerged during daylight hours, which his vessel was within 600 miles of her first objective, the Aleutian island of Atu. That milestone had reached on November 25th, and the crew's comfort level improved dramatically. Even as his sailors' morale went up, already, uh, Yokota's already elevated anxiety level increased even further. He was taking an armed warship on a covert mission to an area believed to be a stronghold of a hugely powerful soon-to-be enemy. He had to assume that discovery by American naval forces led to immediate attack by both sea vessels and aircraft. Now He didn't have to be quite so concerned about running into the U.S. Navy because the I-26 was operating in areas literally at the end of the world as far as American military planners were concerned. Aleutian Islands extended westward into the Bering Sea in a curving arc from the Alaskan mainland and Atu, the westernmost of the group known as the Near Islands, is more than seventeen hundred sea miles from the anchorage. While the U.S. is aware of possible Japanese designs on the Aleutians, the sheer distance involved ensured that Coast Guard cutters and navy ships were infrequent visitors to Atu. Closest island of any significant military presence at the time was Unalaska, about eight hundred and fifty sea miles due east. Of course, the Japanese weren't aware of the scarcity of U.S. military power in the far western Aleutians. A large part of Yokota's mission was to ascertain the true extent of the American presence. Took his submerged submarine in close to Atu for the first perico- periscopic observation um, on the afternoon of November 26. He assured his crew was already was ready to react to any threat that might present itself. None did. Poverty to the secret relief, most members of the I-26 crew and Yokota was able to thoroughly examine the island by periscope. And as directed, he paid particular attention to those sections of the shoreline that might offer suited landing areas for an amphibious assault. Then he surveyed Kiska, a small island, 190 miles to the southeast. He also uh, reconnoitred attic about 260 miles further east, again detected no military presence. Well, things changed when the I-26 arrived off Dutch Harbor on November 29th. Though Yokota didn't know it, the U.S. had accelerated the construction of naval military installations on Unalaska. Now, by the time the I-26 arrived offshore, there were about 5,700 Army troops and several hundred Navy personnel on the island. Now, Yokota didn't see any major warships in the, in the port, but he did note many, obviously, military structures uh, around the harbor and on the nearby hillside part of Army's Fort Mears, and included troop barracks and warehouses and oil tanks. The Japanese subcommander also discovered the presence of American aircraft, though unintentionally. He later recalled, that as he was peering intently through the periscope in the direction of the port, the sudden appearance of a twin-engine aircraft called into order a crash dive. Though no attack ensued, the incident prompted an even greater caution on Nakota's part took his ship back out to sea and spent several hours performing intricate evasive maneuvers in case he'd been detective. Well, when he completed his Dutch harbor reconnaissance, he shaped a course for the southeast running to the surface and aiming across the Gulf of Alaska with all dispatch to be in his assigned position when the attack on Pearl Harbor commenced. Even as the I-26 turned her stern to the Aleutians, the force designed to destroy the U.S. Pacific fleet was on the move. Well, on that note, we come to the end of the day's show. We're moving closer and closer to one of the last mysteries of Pearl Harbor. We'll be discussing that tomorrow. Until then, this is Ken Huddle for the Ken Hudnall Show. And we shall talk to you tomorrow.